Hey there, I'm Scott, and this is Tangents. I, I want to not talk about politics. I would like very much, very much, to just go off on, I don't know, robotics or artificial intelligence or something about economics or almost any other subject. And yet, the current state of the world, the current situation that I find myself in, I can't not talk about it. It is fucking infuriating, I gotta tell you. I mean, it's just, it's frustrating. It is, I try to, I try to be understanding. I mean, there, there is something, I try to remember that when you've known something for a long time, it's easy to forget how hard it was to learn it. Um, the, the example I always like to go back to is tying your shoes. I can today just tie my shoes and I don't even have to look. It just works. I don't even think about it. It's just automated. There was a time when tying my shoes was a challenging thing. And I understand, or I try to understand that. I mean, it's still easy to look at somebody struggling tying their shoes and forget about how hard it was to learn that. So I, I, I try to be cognizant of that. I try very hard. But the thing that gets me, and I mean, well, first off, before I get quite to that, this situation that, that we're in, um, this president, the giant asterisk, um, this, this whole kind of nightmare, um, the situation is extremely dire, extremely stressful. And the thing that I can't say enough, the thing that I can't, I can't stress enough, I can't stop thinking about it, is the fact that I can't stop fucking thinking about it. Um, there's, there's this thing that some people on the right, you know, like crazy right-wing nutjobs, called Trump derangement syndrome, or TDS. And the idea is like you're deranged because you're just constantly talking shit about Trump. And the thing is, this was, it, it's, it's a funny thing because all these fucking people do is projection. It's, it's so much just, you know, like middle school psychology kind of stuff. What they did with Obama, absolutely. Like if you wanted to call it Obama derangement syndrome, um, you could make a legitimate case for that. Uh, they would claim things that had no foundation in fact. Um, I, I mean, I know people, I, I, I can't not talk about this. I think it's something that, uh, I think it's important to have some level of communication with people outside of your sort of bubble. And I know people who, I mean, like the crazy ones, I, I know people who legitimately believe and when I say that, I mean, they are certain, for example, that Hillary has whacked 50 people. Why it has to be 50, I don't know. But in their minds, she has killed 50 people. And the crazy thing is, like the, the Republicans, when they controlled the House and the Senate, they investigated her endlessly, endlessly. Um, they exonerated her countless times. They've had so many investigations of this woman. She is, I, 
I say this a lot and I think it's probably legitimately true, probably the most exonerated person in history. And I don't think that's a overstatement. I think that's, if she's not, she is on the same level as whoever would be. And when you think about that, I mean, it's just, it's insane, the disparity between these people wanting desperately to find anything on her, being unable to do so, and yet somehow the same people are able to convince people that she is this horrible monster. Um, you know, it's like we've exonerated her, but somehow even exonerating her is a sign of like her adeptness or that she's, you know, able to kind of um, slip through. She's, she's slippery. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And these same people, and I'm speaking, this is one of these things that I'll, I'll do often. I think it, it's a thing people do. I'm speaking of a specific person. But when I'm doing that, I'm also using that person as kind of a type example of a whole category of person. Uh, so I know this guy who thinks that, the, the 50 people thing. And this guy, um, he, he has all of these just crazy, ludicrous ideas about Obama. Um, basically, like this idea that he was just going to give people free money. And I mean, it, it, it's... Like, when you start listening, to, you should, I, I strongly encourage you, I beg of you, uh, please talk to some of these people, because I feel crazy just conveying this to you. It is so disconnected with reality. And it's also, I mean, it's, the thing that makes it just, like, wacko is that in certain circles, these things are not just considered reasonable, they are just accepted facts. Um, like, you know, the, like gravity in, in this bubble, in this particular bubble, Hillary killed people, zero doubt, according to these people, uh, in this bubble, according to them, Obama was going to do this, Obama's going to do that. Uh, and you just go through, you know, and so much stuff. I mean, one of the things it's, it's dated now, but one of the things I always wanted to put in my, uh, don't buy books written by doctors book was this sort of anecdote of Obama gave a speech and in that speech he said something along the lines of if you have a, well, I'm going to take the excerpt out and then I'm going to zoom out. The excerpt was, if you have a small business, you didn't build that. Sounds pretty crazy, right? And that's the correct response. You should hear that and you should think, your bullshit meter should go, eh, something is off. You Google it. And then you find the actual speech that that came from. And then you realize that in the context of the speech, what he was saying is not that you didn't build your small business. It was that if you have a small business, that was predicated on having roads and a stable economy and all of these things that came from government, all of these things that we have collectively created for ourselves. And there are things... Uh, most of them are public goods. Most of them are not things like you go, you wait in a line and then you get some kind of handout. Um, you know, you use the street. You don't even think about you're using government-funded stuff. Government is maintaining that street. They built that street. They built the lights. They're powering the street lights. All of these things are predicated on government. 
And the thing is, when government works, and this is, this is a, it's almost a curse of any kind of infrastructure. When it works, it becomes invisible. You are not aware of it. The only time you're aware of it is when it doesn't work. So for example, like my, my dad would tell stories of uh, when he grew up and he lived near steel mills in Northwest Indiana. And if they went outside during the day, they would be covered in soot from the coke fur the, the, the furnaces. Um, just coke is, you know, basically just uh, purified uh, sort of burnt off coal, which they would use to melt steel, to melt iron and smelt it and you know, so on. There, there would be the soot everywhere. And I mean, it's, it's like if you look at England, uh, Victorian England, all of these coal-fired uh, power plants and all of this stuff, factories and such, and you'd go to London and everything was just covered in soot and you'd just be dirty all the time. That was just how life was. Uh, then we got environmental regulations, or got, I mean, we fought for, then they came into place. And over time, the air got a lot cleaner. Now it's not perfect, but it's so much cleaner than it used to be. Um, in LA, the first time I went decades ago, I got off the plane and we were, I, I was going to Hawaii. I lived there, um, I went there for, for graduate school. And I was going there, had a flight via LA. Got off the plane, exited the terminal, went to the next terminal. And in the process of going from one terminal to the next, my eyes were burning. The air was just so bad. The air quality was just obnoxiously horrible. Um, we have had emission standards on cars for, you know, quite a while now. They're slowly improving. And, you know, it, you kind of get a taste of this every once in a while because you'll have one obnoxious, either a antique car or somebody who's fucked with their emissions control system. Uh, they're burning their uh, fuel a little rich so they can get an extra like two horsepower out of their, out of their thing. Whatever the fuck they're doing. Um, you'll see that one car and it will be a mile ahead of you. And still, the exhaust from that one car is obnoxious. It's horrible. Like you have to close your windows and turn off the vent. And you think about it, that used to be every car. Not that long ago. And so now we've got these, these regulations and we have relatively clean air. It makes a big fucking difference. But once you have relatively clean air, once you have rivers that are not catching fire due to the pollution that is in them, you start forgetting about it. You start forgetting, oh, yeah, this is how things could be. And this is where we are now. I mean, this is this point where people think government doesn't work. You know, thank you, St. Reagan. Uh, they think uh, this idea, this just deluded idea that somehow like the worst things you can hear are I'm from the government and I want to help. You know, fuck you, dude. The government, I mean, first off, the government is us. This is, you know, to be fair, we have some capture by very powerful and wealthy entities and people, but the government still comes from us. We still elect officials. We still hold people responsible, or at least we have the power to. We don't do it enough, but we could do more. And it's an interesting thing. If you have a government agency, 
we can control it, we can fix it, we can hold it accountable when things are not done well. And you think about it, that is a very different situation than this. Uh, I, I was in a, a meeting this past week. It was meant to be an organizing meeting to sort of teach people how to organize for uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. And I have to say, I'm not, I'm not a socialist. I'm, I'm, I think democratic socialist works. I'm not somebody who thinks you can get rid of capitalism. I think uh, I, I, I see why people think that and I see the appeal of it, but I think generally speaking, capital, or at least this is my understanding of it, not an economist, I should say, but, uh, or, nor a political scientist. But I think capitalism basically is an emergent phenomenon that happens once you have a finite supply of something and you have more demand for that thing than you have supply. Um, now, what we have now where people are trying to maximize profit at any cost and in the short term, you know, we got to get those next quarter numbers up. Um, that is not intrinsic to capitalism, although it is something that I think naturally happens in that kind of a system because what happens, it, it's an interesting thing, actually. If you randomly distribute, say, say you have a population, you randomly hand out some amount of wealth, and that amount of wealth is gonna be like, there's some mean or median value, and then you have some variation onto that. And just by chance, some people get a little more, some people get a little less. Now, the people who have more are able to weather bad situations better. They're able to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves when there are economic downturns. The people who have less are in a position where if things get bad, they're kind of in a corner. They have to spend some of that money. They have to do stuff. And what ends up happening is that the wealth in the people that had a little bit more starts getting more and more concentrated. And the people who had less get less and less progressively. Now, this is assuming that you have a finite fixed amount. Um, in reality, in the world, we've been increasing sort of the amount of value, whatever you want to call that, so much that even though this is happening and the wealthy now have ridiculous amounts, we've kind of raised all boats so that even the poor people now, I, I thought this when I went to Versailles the first time, uh, you go to Versailles and you think, at the time of Louis XIV, this was the best you could do, probably in the entire world. Um, you could not have a place that was nicer than Versailles. And when you think about it, I mean, it, it is a pretty place. The gardens are great. Um, but when you actually look at the living quarters, no air conditioning, no running water internally. You know, I mean, just all the stuff that even the poor among us in this country take for granted. They did not have. Um, you know, if you wanted water that was not tainted, probably not guaranteed to get it. And you think about it, it's like the most powerful person in the world could not have air conditioning, couldn't have television, couldn't have an internet connection. And it, didn't, it wasn't even on the table. It wasn't a thing that people even conceived of as a notion that you might have. He could have entertainment, but he had to have live entertainment. Like you'd actually literally have to have people 
come into your place. I mean, imagine that if you wanted to watch a show, you have to have some actors come in and do a performance for you. Um, now you could be relatively poor and you probably have a TV, probably even have an iPhone. Um, you can pull that thing up and watch stuff. You can watch essentially things like this. I mean, this is, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I have spent more time since undergrad, since, since I graduated high school, I've spent more time in school than I spent up to the point where I graduated high school, um, which is a crazy realization I had a long time ago in grad school. And it's, it's only, you know, it's increased since then. I am in that sense a resource. And I think, I think a lot about this actually, um, the amount of privilege that that reflects. I mean, I am very, very happy that I have, I have that, but I know people, you know, who don't, and I know people who came from a, a different environment. And like, for example, I know, uh, I, about a year ago, met uh, this guy, Lyft driver, um, was coming back uh, from Boston, from vacation there. Uh, landed at the airport, took a lift back, and I'm like a half hour now from the airport, um, which is annoying. I've got, I've got to move soon, but uh, yeah, never mind that now. I, at one point, I was like five minutes away. The planes were annoying, but five minutes. Yeah. But this half hour thing, uh, the lift driver was a Nigerian guy, and we talked, and just you you hear all of the stuff about uh, like it. It's interesting, actually, how many parallels there are between that country and, say, our country. Although there, they're kind of a little bit more extreme. Uh, there, he was talking about how uh, you know, powerful people, wealthy people, rather than investing in their own country, would fly you know, private jets to the UK, for example. How people would... Uh, that noise is really annoying, isn't it? I don't think this is going to get better. I apologize for the noise. It's not terminating and I have a finite amount of time. So I'm going to just plow through. Uh, hopefully I, I will try to filter it out or do something, um, but sorry. So, you know, he's explaining though, like the wealthy people there would uh, fly private jets to the UK to go to a hospital and spend insane amounts of money rather than building a hospital there or improving the hospitals that are there. And you think about this, it's kind of, it's not that dissimilar to here, just a little more extreme. Uh, the wealthy people, I mean, it, somebody said this a couple days ago to me and I think it's absolutely right. We are a first world country, the United States, with a third world health system, um, healthcare system. Now, people always talk about how we have this great healthcare system. Our healthcare system sucks. We are not at parity. We're not even close to parity with where the rest of the developed world was decades ago. And even in those cases, like where people used to be, we are not there. We're not close. They did not have people who would go into massive bankruptcy because of a medical problem. 
Now, granted, at the time, maybe if your kid had uh, leukemia, they were a little bit more screwed than they are now. So you, you could at least live, but you could also live with like millions of dollars in debt that you'll never be able to pay off. You know, like uh, your entire lifetime worth of earnings in medical debt um, is a thing that a lot of people get and then they go into bankruptcy. It's awesome. And you think about it, all these other countries, I mean, it, you see these tables, or I, I see them a lot, where it's just like uh, United States at the top and then you have this large number of people with medical bankruptcies. And then you just go down the list and zero, 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 all these other countries. And we're not even close. We're not, we have such a shitty healthcare system. Even if you have money, it's pretty shitty. You can get good care, but it's not great. Um, I mean, just like filling out forms and all of this stuff. It's not a modern system. We have something where it's just kind of this cobbled together. Um, everything is ad hoc. Everything is for profit. Uh, this, this is getting to actually what I was trying to say about the, uh, the DSA call, a meeting that I was in. Um, the thing that they said that really just resonated with me, and this is something that I've heard and thought about before, but it just somehow like clicked this time, was that there's this neoliberal consensus. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have this idea that the best way to run everything is some kind of like for-profit entity. And it's just a given. It's just, you can't even debate it. It is a consensus between the parties. Now, granted, there are a lot of people like me who are in one of the parties, or I guess formerly, I'm no longer a Democrat, but uh, I was uh, basically my whole adult life. And we would see this and not agree with it, but you're kind of stuck there. And it, it's something like I've, I've talked about uh, my friend Gil uh, kind of explaining, you know, like you can make a selfish case for doing the right thing, but you shouldn't have to, and you shouldn't do it. I think just framing it that way, I've, I've been making a concerted effort not to, because framing it that way implies that being selfish is not horrible. Um, yes, you can make a selfish case for almost anything, um, and doing the right thing helps everybody, almost always, but you shouldn't have to do the right thing. You shouldn't have to have public schools because it's going to help your property values, for example. You should be willing to pay what teachers are worth because it is a fucking public good. It's something that helps everybody and it's the right thing to do. And again, so you know, my, my friend from Nigeria, you know, he is talking about this whole life path that he had and you know, he went, he actually went and got a computer science degree, although his school taught COBOL. So if you know anything about programming, this is an ancient language. It's actually somewhat in demand um, now, but it's not something that people use in modern, modern programming at all. It's in demand now because there are a lot of these old systems that need to be maintained. So in that sense, it's kind of valuable. And there are a lot of things about like, if you're learning programming, um, the language doesn't matter as much as sort of the way that you think and what's involved with that. And I gotta tell you, this noise is fucking killing me. I'm so sorry about that. I, I despise, despise, despise these fucking two-stroke engines. And I don't blame the guys that are out there using them. I mean, these are guys making, you know, they're busted. They're actually working hard 
busting their ass, making almost no money. Um, but they have these two-stroke engines that are super cheap. And like I was talking about emissions controls. Four-stroke engines, we have kind of gotten down. I mean, the exhaust that comes out of your car with a catalytic converter and all of the modern fuel, like all of the modern controls that we have, the exhaust is basically CO2 and water vapor. And you compare that to the exhaust of say one of these two stroke engines, the exhaust is basically partially uncombusted gas, oil, because in a two stroke engine, there's no separate oil, like the lubrication is mixed into the fuel. Uh, so you're burning the lubrication as well. You're letting, you're not burning it completely. There's no catalytic converter. And all of this stuff is just kind of coming out in this horrible cloud. And it is obnoxiously loud, as you can hear. And all they're doing out there is blowing shit around. So they're like getting dust up into the air and making it miserable. And these guys often, often, often don't have hearing protection. Like sometimes I see it, but often they don't. So they're out there getting paid jack shit, annoying people, and they're losing their hearing in the process. So it's a fucked up situation, which actually goes into this malignant capitalism thing, because it's one of these things, I mean, uh, you, you have to understand like where we are. And this is an interesting thing about this, this pandemic, because it's kind of shown a light on how much the people who are really essential are paid jack shit. They're the people who, I mean, I, I talked about this before, but the person who collects your garbage, you probably don't hold them in high esteem. They're certainly not paid that well. And they have a, not as bad of a job as it used to be, because now the, the truck just picks up the, the thing, you know, but it's still not the greatest job. And you're driving around in a truck that smells like garbage. But that person, if they stop their job, I mean, this is uh, this is the thing. Um, if they were in a union, for example, and they all just struck, uh, they all went on strike. Your garbage would pile up very quickly. I, I was in Paris during a garbage strike. I, in fact, I was in New York during a garbage strike. And in both cases, you don't want to be there. It's extremely unpleasant. And that's after that's not like after five months of no garbage services. This is after like a week or two. It just starts accumulating. And you realize how much shit people are making and just how much, you know, the, the amount of crap that each one of us individually, um, even when we're trying not to, but especially like on average, each of us puts out so much fucking garbage and it's shocking, you know, how bad that is if you don't see it just magically go away. And so, you know, these are people who get fucked in this current system. And so like I'm saying though, I'm, I'm not a socialist. I don't think like the, the idea that you basically eliminate private ownership of everything and everything is owned by the workers. Um, I do think, I mean, I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's an idealization. Um, it, I, I put it, I liken it very much to objectivism because in both cases, they're opposite sign, sides of the coin. But in both cases, you have this kind of cartoon um, idealized view of human nature and how things work, totally disconnected from reality and does not really function um, when you actually expose it to like, real people. And 
Yet they're, they're kind of interesting thought experiments, maybe, and you can understand like, oh, well actually maybe there is, you know, the, the objectivist idea is basically being selfish and acting, everybody acting in their own self-interest is the greatest good. Um, this is demonstrably false, and there are so many examples of why I'm not even gonna bother going into it, but it's definitely not true. There are lots of things that we can do collectively that make us individually um, live better, live longer, uh, do things that, I mean, there are just so many things where we make massive collective investments and you might not like paying your taxes, but by paying your taxes, you get things that you could never have afforded by yourself. And this goes again into like how much privilege, I mean, in order to have the amount of education that I have, um, first off, the amount of time that I put in, the ability to not have to work uh, during most of that. I mean, I, I worked, but I didn't have to like work at McDonald's or you know like clean or do something uh, like that. I, I worked, but in research, I got an RA ship. That's a big fucking privilege. Um, I got TA ships. I got, uh, as an undergrad, mostly I just got student loans. And I got, I've got to tell you, I mean, it sucks to pay them and the student loans were definitely uh, excessive, but I, I'd still, if I knew somebody, I mean, here's the thing, actually, if somebody wants to go to university, I think they should be covered. I, I really do believe, now you shouldn't necessarily have like a, a huge mansion and you shouldn't necessarily live in great luxury or have you know all of these amenities. But if you want to subsist, I think every, we are by far, by far, by far wealthy enough that everyone who wants to subsist could do so. We are wealthy enough that everyone who wants to subsist could have healthcare coverage. And there's, there's basically no argument there. I mean, we spend, I talk about this a lot, but we spend like a fifth of our GDP on healthcare. There are other countries that spend half of what we do um, sometimes a little bit more than half, but there, there exist countries where they spend half of what we do and they cover everybody. They have no medical bankruptcies and the care and the outcomes are much better. And the experience is much better versus us where we have this idea that, you know, like everybody's a customer, it's all customers. And yet our customer service, the experience that you have being a customer, a patient, customer, people call it, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, if you can't hear it, I've got disdain in my voice for this idea that a patient is a customer, but never mind that now. The idea that this somehow market system has created a horrible experience for patients, um, it has, all, basically all it has done is create a system where a few people make a shit ton of money and everything costs way too much and the quality and the outcomes are actually getting worse. Um, it's, it's crazy, we're spending more and more. It's not just that we're fixed at almost a fifth of our GDP, that is gradually increasing. Soon it's gonna be more than a fifth of our GDP. More per capita than countries, you know, by, by far, than countries that cover everybody. And at the same time, our life expectancy is going down. Um, infant mortality is going up the mortality rate for women in childbirth is going up. We are not near the top in terms of low, like high quality of life, in terms of 
low levels of infant mortality and maternal mortality. Uh, we're actually like at sort of third world levels there basically. Um, it, it's crazy actually how much people think we have this great healthcare system and how shitty it actually is. And so anyway, you think about this and it's, it's, it's very fucked up. So I understand why people think, you know, oh, let's just um, repa replace that with something where everything is socially owned. And I, I, I gotta tell you, like there are certain things where collective ownership makes sense. Um, healthcare is something, like I'm, I'm a huge believer in universal healthcare that includes both, and instead of insurance companies, no private insurance, just a public, um, not an option, but just a public fund that covers all the medical expenses. Um, maybe if you want to have plastic surgery and get a breast augmentation, that's not for like, you know, you don't have a uh, BRCA and you're not gonna get a mastectomy because you're trying to prevent uh, breast cancer. You just want big tits. Okay, maybe you pay for that. But other than that, um, basically almost everything, almost everything that you get should be free at the point of service. And one of the tricks that people like to play with this stuff is, so you wanna give free medical care to rich people? Um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting scam. Uh, this is, and it's a thing like, it, this is one of those things like the idea of uh, term limits. Term limits sound great until you really look into them. Um, means testing sounds great until you really think about it. Because means testing, you're like, oh, well, I don't want somebody who's stupidly rich to be able to get free college or to get free healthcare. And you're like, that sounds, that sounds fair, right? If you have a lot of money, then you should pay for it. The thing is, if you have a lot of money, if you're stupidly rich, A, you are paying for it because in a system that's not as fucked up as ours, if you're stupidly rich, you're paying a shit ton of taxes. If you're wealthy, you're paying a lot of taxes. So you're paying for more than you would be getting. Yeah, so first of all. Second, the process of means testing adds this extra layer of overhead and complexity to everything. And that makes it miserable. It means the experience is bad and it means also that the people that really need it have to go through this bureaucratic bullshit rather than just getting what they need. And it's not free. Again, you're spending money and time and resources on that. So it's an interesting problem. I mean, it's like um, when you think about universal bank basic income, I, I might do an episode on that later on, but um, it's, it's something that I'm a very big advocate of. I don't like the, uh, the Andrew Yang thing where you have the $1,000 freedom dividend. I don't like, um, I'm not a huge fan of that because the, the thing that you have to worry about, I guess I'm going to talk about it now. I, I can't help it, it's a tangent. Uh, the thing about that that I think is important to know, especially like if you look at the history, um, Milton Friedman was an economist, um, I think in the 70s, long time ago. And he came up with this idea of something called a negative income tax. I think it was his idea, he at least really promoted it, whether it was his or not. And the idea was basically that you, in, instead of having the bottom be zero, basically if you're not earning any money, you get a negative income tax. So money is coming to you. You have a, you know, some minimal amount of income. And then as you start earning more and more money, 
you start paying more and more in taxes. So you hit that bottom and then you sort of slowly ramp up. And then once you're making past a certain threshold, that negative income tax becomes a positive tax. And now you are getting, uh, you know, you're making more money monotonically as you make more money, you're taking home more money. Um, you don't have like a welfare trap thing where if you make more money, you hit the threshold and then all of a sudden you lose a shit ton of money and you have to make a lot more just to get back to where you were. Um, that is not a thing that you want to reproduce. But you have this, this negative income tax, and it actually sounds kind of great. It's like, uh, and this is a super conservative guy. The trick is, this is a, it's kind of a good thing, but it's also a scheme to get rid of uh, welfare and all of these other programs that cost a lot of money and that help people, you know, eat and have medical care and all of this stuff. So there's this libertarian thing that's been going around for decades where people want to have this kind of universal income or minimum income or whatever it is. And the trick that they pull is A, it's means tested, which again, you know, adds a lot of overhead and B, it's going to replace, this is the thing you have to really pay attention to. It's going to replace all the other things that you're getting. And those things that you're getting, uh, if you're getting SNAP and food stamps and all of this kind of stuff, you are getting more money than $1,000 a month worth of stuff. Now, the problem is, of course, if you try to make a universal basic income that's not means tested and you expand out like, okay, I, I think the correct number in today's dollars is something like $2,000 a month. $2,000 a month for every adult um, American, you multiply that out, it adds up to insane, insane amount of money. Now, the interesting thing is compared to our GDP, not that insane. So the money exists for it. And you certainly, you know, if you're poor and you get money, that money is not going to stay in your pockets. It's not going to your bank account. It's probably going to be spent, which means that you're essentially providing some kind of engine for the economy. But at the same time, when you look at the costs of these things, it's very overwhelming. And so people very often come up with something like Yang's thing, which is $1,000 a month. Not nearly enough to subsist. And it comes at the price of actually having all of these other things that probably are more valuable to, to some people. Now, I, I like, personally, I, I would much rather give people cash than food stamps. I always found the food stamp thing to be very paternalistic. And basically, you're instead of giving people the ability to you know, have the cash and do what they want with it, um, they have the ability to buy certain things and we decide what they can do with that. It's very distasteful to me. I don't like it. I think it's, um, and, and I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I also don't like the idea of somebody getting government assistance and just buying alcohol. But if that person is an addict, um, if, if it's just somebody and they wanna have like a beer once in a while, let them have a beer, not a big deal. It's an interesting thing. I mean, if you look at, um, like, say there are people who would subsist and just put on an Oculus and play in VR 24-7. They'd just be, like, that would be their life. I don't know that it's a bad thing to let somebody subsist and do that, especially when you think of what does it enable. When you when you think about it, people who, like, like my Nigerian friend, I'm going to keep coming back to this guy, he works really hard. And he works so hard at his job that 
he doesn't have time to work on programming. So I, I helped him out for a while um, with, you know, kind of developing some programming skills. But the problem is he just has no free time with his job. So, you know, and he's burnt out from it. If he could take off a couple of months and just focus on that and just subsist, like he doesn't live in a great place. He, he actually has pretty meager accommodations. Uh, he doesn't have a ton of money. He's kind of like struggling despite working very hard, but he's stuck, you know, he's stuck. And you think about like what it would take to get him unstuck. Uh, it's a significant amount of work and effort and time. And it's something that we could easily afford as a society if we wanted to. It is an investment that would pay off too, because this guy will work hard and in the future actually produce stuff. He will have added a lot more value than he is now, just being a cog in some, um, some shitty business. And you think about it though, this is a situation where like, how does he escape that? I, I'm not saying you can't do it. There are certainly people who do, but the difficulty of him escaping it versus say me, and, and I'm not even by any means the most uh, privileged person at all. I, I have a slight amount of privilege in that sense, but I'm still way above a lot of people. People who have money, I mean like there were times when I was a kid where we were struggling just to be able to have enough money to eat. Um, never like actually not eating, but we came close sometimes. There are people who actually can't eat. Um, and then there are people who, like, I fucking hate this dude, but Jared Kushner, you know, you imagine this dude, um, this guy has had everything handed to him his whole life. He's had so many advantages. I mean, it, I'm gonna come back to Hunter Biden because I can't stop thinking about this shit. It bugs the shit out of me. This dude made 50K per month in a job he wasn't qualified for basically because of a, because of chance of birth. Um, whether that was a bribe to his dad or didn't matter at all, and it was just like with, you know, a nice thing for him that these guys did hoping that something would come of it, it doesn't fucking matter. This dude made 600K per year um, doing something that anyone could do and that he wasn't qualified for. So, you know, he's not qualified for the job what he's actually doing, you could do probably, uh, whatever your qualifications are. You could probably do better than he did, I, I would almost guess. Um, and, it, and you think about that, just that disparity between that and that dude, that one 600K guy, if you took 50K or 60K out of that and you gave it to my Nigerian friend and you let him go to school and actually get training in programming, um, he would, uh, his life would change versus this other asshole who's already, and, and I'm not trying to say Joe Biden is particularly rich. Um, he's poor for Congress, which is sad, but most of them are like Pelosi kind of people where they've got like, in her case, I think over a hundred million dollars in, uh, in net worth, an insane amount of money um, for somebody who is supposed to be a public servant. Now, granted, she didn't get all of it through her job, you know, it's like her husband and some real estate investments and all this kind of stuff. But you may, you know, if you don't have a lot of resources, making those kinds of investments is probably prohibitive. And then also the job that she's had has offered her 
let's just say some opportunities and insights into things that the average person wouldn't have. So her investments were easier and also, you know, she could uh, have some kind of like better chances of having them pay off. And not only that, but you know, when you're in Congress, I mean, right now, I think you make 174K. They might've updated that recently, but uh, you make a decent amount of money. Now in DC, not great, but still compared to most people, pretty fucking good. And along with that decent amount of money, you are making, um, or you're getting fantastic government funded healthcare. You're getting a retirement program paid for by us, the taxpayers. You're getting all of these benefits and you just think about it. It's, and, and also, I mean, like if you're a congressperson, your campaign can't pay you more than your, your salary would be. If you're, uh, if you're actively in Congress, your campaign can't pay you at all. But that doesn't mean that they can't do things that indirect, indirectly benefit you. And especially if you're doing things like, uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of ways to have money kind of sift to you outside of your income. So yeah, just that, you know, imagine you have 174K every year um, and you have a little bit of money already. You could, you're free to make a lot of investments. You're free to take risks. I mean, these people have such, so much, so much fucking time off too. It's not like they're working, um, you know, 50 weeks a year or 48 weeks a year. You know, they're working a fraction of a year in their jobs, which are not, I'm not, I'm not claiming the sitting there and, uh, you know, sometimes going into the wee hours debating and all this stuff. I'm not claiming it's easy, but it's not that hard. I guarantee compared to like picking up trash or cleaning a house, you know, not a bad job. So they're getting paid this much and getting shit tons of time off, huge benefits. You just think about it, it's just, it's a fucked up situation. And the thing that actually is interesting about that is that you could make a pretty good argument that you should be paying them more. And of course, this is one of those things like, like the term limits and uh, like the, uh, you know, the means testing. It doesn't seem like, why, why would you want to pay these people who are already making so much more? Well. The thing is, you have these people in a position where they're making decisions and they're able to be bribed. I mean, you look at like the number of people who, and I say bribed, legally bribed. Our, our campaign finances are so fucked up. They're legally bribed, often a pittance, $10,000, and then they'll pass some legislation, you know, like nothing, nothing. They'll pass some legislation that ends up costing the taxpayers millions of dollars or more. Sorry about that. I had a call, um, didn't realize how late it was and uh, a meeting kind of collided with this. Uh, I love I love doing this, but um, the constraints that I'm working around are a little bit annoying. So with that, thank you again. I am sorry that I kind of had an incomplete thought, but I think pretty much all of these are incomplete thoughts that will just gradually over time reconnect together. Um, with that, thank you for listening and uh, say Jen.